Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Over 20 years ago, you might remember a lot of hype and conspiracy theories surrounding a different kind of global calamity than what we're experiencing right now. The year 2000. Y2K. A Senate panel describes the year 2000 computer bug as a worldwide crisis. Only chaos theory could calculate the multiple ramifications of what may occur. Everything's in the internet, everything's in computers, and we're going to lose it all. And Jesus is coming back. Oh no, it's happening. Yeah, I remember being really afraid. I didn't really understand the problem, I think, um, when it happened. I just remember seeing lots and lots of stuff in the media about how basically all hell was going to break loose and it was going to be the end of the world. And then, of course, largely that did not happen. Well, it turned out to be nothing. 2000 was ushered in without major incident. Bank machines were working, power was still on, planes were flying, and petrol pumps pumping. I remember also all the jokes people made being like, oh my God, we were so ridiculous. Like, what a hoax, what a scam. This is my good friend Rose Eveleth. She's the creator and host of the podcast Flash Forward which is generally about the future. I really wanted to do an episode about Y2K on the podcast. Um, I've been fascinated by the sort of weird way we remember or misremember that event for a long time. And in doing research on that, I stumbled across this very ominous sounding year 2038 problem, which I then looked into and is quite similar. Um, It's sort of often referred to as, you know, Y2K part two. All the people I talked to who worked on Y2K problems are all worried about 2038. Okay, and to be clear, the the name of this problem is the year 2038 problem? Yes, very catchy. I know. Y2K is a way better name, right? Like, that makes more sense. But, like, why... (laughs) 38 is not like why it just there's no it's a not a good name. <laughs> Despite the terrible name, Rose was still intrigued. So she looked into the year 2038 problem, which, as it turns out, is pretty similar to the Y2K bug because it's all about computer memory. The thing I was really interested in in diving into this question is whether or not we've learned anything from Y2K, whether we learned our lesson, whether we're any more prepared for these kinds of problems. Today on the show, why, despite what you might remember, some of the Y2K anxiety was actually justified. And what lessons should we learn from how that bug was ultimately handled? especially since we got another big one coming in 2038. 
I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. So what was the Y2K problem exactly? The Y2K problem is essentially a problem in the way that computers store dates. So when computers were first invented, memory was really, really expensive and hard to come by. Mm -hmm. So you would come up with little tricks to cut down on the number of spaces you needed to use, much like you might on Twitter, right? That you come up with abbreviations or things like that. And one of the things that they did was they abbreviated the year to a two-digit number. So 1997 would just be 97, 1955 would just be 55. Mm-hmm. Obviously this works great until you hit the year 2000 because the computer may not know that that is 2000 and not 1900. Right. Both of those are zero, zero. And lots of people have had seen this problem coming, right? But the question a lot of people had was what would actually happen? So the worry was that it would hit January 1st, 2000. Computers would try to put the date in and they would put 00 and either they would get confused about what year it was or they would just shut down or something bad would happen. And that's basically the issue. And you actually talked to somebody about this. Who did you talk to? Yeah, I talked to Peter DeYager, who is sort of um, known as, I guess, the town crier for Y2K, for better or for worse. Um, You know, he had seen this problem coming very early on in the 70s and been like, Boss, we're going to have a problem with the computer out there. He says, what do you mean? Well, when it gets to the year 2000, it won't work properly. And he looks at me, he says, you're worried about a problem that isn't going to happen for 23 years. Get out of here. And I did because he's the manager. I'm a computer operator. What do I know? So I leave. I don't worry about it. And in the 90s, he was one of the people, one of many people who started really trying to kind of get people to pay attention to this problem. He was sort of, in many ways, the face of the sort of Y2K awareness campaign. And you actually asked Peter to walk you through what impact the Y2K bug would have if left unchecked, right? He gave you like a doomsday scenario. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, A lot of Peter's career has been trying to not get people to say the word doomsday and related to Y2K, but instead (laughs) just actually figure out what to fix. But I did ask him to indulge me in a doomsday situation, Um, and he he offered a couple of options. So you want a doomsday scenario. Fair enough. (laughs) Yes, please. Go to the banking system. The banking system is the easiest one to understand because everything it does is based upon dates. When is the mortgage overdue? When is your next payment? Etc. Etc. How much interest do I owe on the account? And if the calculations are incorrect, literally the money that you own is being misrepresented. It's not accurate. And if there's any one thing that we need to get accurate, it's money. So if your bank account is inaccessible to everybody in America for one month, what happens? Right. A lot of this revolves around trust. Do you trust your bank to still have the right numbers in your bank account? by the time this is fixed? And are you not going to, you know, riot in the streets while you're waiting for this to get fixed? Right. And I don't know how many landlords are going to take Y2K as an excuse for you to not pay your rent or whatever it is. Okay, that's terrifying. And Peter, you mentioned he was sort of the town crier for Y2K. How did he sound the alarm? In 1993, he wrote an article for a trade magazine called Computer World, and it was about Y2K. And it wasn't, you know, the first article written about Y2K, and it wasn't even the most sort of dire article written about Y2K. But the 
editors at Computer World Magazine gave it a very uh, iconic title. Doomsday 2000. Not my choice, but it turned out to be a good title. You know, ultimately, it really was the article that sort of kicked a lot of this off. Um, so maybe the headline was a good choice. Maybe the editor did a good job. But that was sort of the big thing. Then once that sort of article came out and people got really interested in it, it sort of took off from there. How does he feel about being the face of Y2K, given how it's perceived today? Well, what he told me is that it used to really bother him that people would say things like, oh, what a scam, what a hoax, you know, when he kind of knows that that's not really the case. You got to keep beating the drum until people start marching. And are you beating it too much? Well, absolutely. For some people, you're beating it way too much. Other people still haven't got the message. At some point for the laggards, you just say, I don't care anymore. But now he says, he told me at least, that it doesn't bother him anymore because he sort of knows the truth. He knows that lots of people spent lots and lots of time to fix these systems such that they would not cause problems. Um, and he also, you know, knows that some problems did happen on January 1st, 2000. Um, it wasn't widespread chaos, but there were systems that stopped working. A handful of U.S. spy satellites were down for three days. So there were a handful of problems that did arise um, during sort of the month after Y2K. And of course, in 2020, this January, there were again Y2K problems um, because, you know. Wait, seriously? Yeah. Like this this is still impacting <laughs> yes, us? Yes, yes. So um, the way that many people fixed the Y2K problem was not by saying, OK, computer, you need to remember four digits so that you can get the whole year. What they did was they said, we're just going to use something called windowing. And so what we're going to do is say, OK, computer, let's say you see a date number. It's two digits. If that date number is more than zero, you should assume that it is in the year 2000. So if it's, uh, you know, 05, you should assume that that's 2005, not 1905. Right. But if it's more than 20, you should assume that it's in the 1900s. So if it is 20, you should assume it's 1920. Of course, that works great for the years 2000 through 2019. Right. As soon as it becomes 2020, there's the same problem again. And in fact, it did cause problems. So parking meters in New York didn't work. There were some trains in Germany that couldn't go anywhere because they had this problem. Um, there are all sorts of things that happened in January that actually were Y2K problems. We just sort of delayed them by 20 years. So no offense to the people who tried and, and fix the parking meters in New York City, for instance, but um, that, that seems sort of short-sighted. <laughs> why, why just push it off by 20 years? That's a good question. The reason, as I understand it, is that it's a lot easier to fix it that way than it is to actually go into a system and give two more digits within a storage system. So to just give it this kind of like mental trick is actually much cheaper, much faster, much easier. And probably like the Y2K problem when Peter was like, hey, it's 1970, like we should figure this out. And everyone's like, eh, it's 30 years away, whatever. People in 2000 were like, eh, it's 20 years away. Somebody else will deal with this um, or we'll figure out a better cool. way or we'll, ha we'll have a different system by then. Um, it is not trivial to add two digits into a lot of these systems. That's not just an easy thing to go in and like typeity type in, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. So it's actually easier to do this windowing thing than to kind of restructure the way that your data is stored. But it's probably worth doing given that we have not really solved this problem. So what I'm getting from you, Rose, is that Y2K like was not silly. It was actually a real problem. Yeah. I mean, again, there were definitely 
people who were overreacting, right? You had, you know, cultists being like, this is the literal end of the world, which is not true. That said, it was a real problem. And a lot of people spent a lot of time and money fixing that problem so that we didn't have some of the worst effects. So if a lot of the problems related to Y2K were real problems that engineers were able to fix in advance of the turn of the century, then it kind of sounds like Y2K was a success story. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think Y2K was a success. I I would hope that instead of remembering it as us all being ridiculous and silly, we remember it as a time when a lot of people in a lot of different industries and a lot of different jobs spent a lot of invisible time fixing something so that we didn't have to worry about it. Um, We're lucky that we get to talk about Y2K as a scam. And a lot of people worked really hard to make that possible. All right, so we dealt with Y2K. For the most part, we actually did a good job. But now we're facing another similar problem that's coming not in the year 3000, but in 2038. So what the heck is so worrisome about the year 2038? We'll discuss that and more in the not-so-distant future, after the break. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So, I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox, to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. So we're back with Rose Eveleth, futurologist and host of the podcast Flash Forward. So Rose, you mentioned that the year 2038 is a problem for some computers, and specifically I actually think it's January 19th, 2038, right? What's significant about that date? Sure. So January 19th, 2038 is an important date uh, because computers are very strange and computers remember dates very weirdly. Many computers, not all computers, but many computers count time in this very strange way. What they do is they count up from the Unix epoch. The beginning of time for these computers is January 1st, 1970, and they count up from there in seconds. So five minutes after January 1st, 1970, you and I might be like, ah, it is, you know, 1205, January 1st, 1970. But a computer would be like, ah, it is 300. Like that is how they count time. Um, And many systems... They have something called a 32-bit architecture, which basically just means that each little atom of information that they can store is 32 bits. And at some point, a number is larger than what you can store in 32 bits. And the date on which the number of seconds that number gets to be too big for a 32-bit system to store is on January 19th, 2038. So at that point, a very similar thing happens to the year 2000 and the computer is like, but I don't know what this is. Um, And so what you're telling me is that January 19th, 2038 is is it's exactly the same problem as as Y2K in some ways. It's that these computers are just going to 
go nuts when that date comes around. Yeah, most likely they will just sort of shut down because many of these computers, particularly the ones that are the most vulnerable, they're kind of older and they have been running for a long time. And in many cases, the person who coded the software doesn't work there anymore. In a lot of cases, that person's not even alive anymore. So it's a lot of these systems they've kind of been running with no problems for 30, 40 years. And then all of a sudden they get to this date and they see something that they can't store. And mostly what they'll do is they'll either just shut down or they'll just return an error. So is this all just a computer memory problem? Basically, yeah, it all comes down to a computer memory problem, right? That like at some point, you know, now we think of a lot of people think of memory as being really cheap, but that, of course, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Memory used to be really expensive. And the more you could crunch things down into these little units, the better you would be. Uh, And so to do that, they sort of came up with these formats and these ways of storing data. And that works great until you get to these certain choke points and you end up with problems. So what will it actually take to prevent this disaster? So one of the people I talked to for the episode is John Feminella, who is an engineering leader at a company called ThoughtWorks. And ThoughtWorks' whole thing, among other things, is to help people update their systems. No one's going to say that you should invest all your effort in fixing a problem that is going to be 18 years away, potentially. If there's one right in front of you, that's on fire. But there's always going to be something that's right in front of you that's on fire. And if you keep deferring the important problems down the road and you don't make it clear about what the trade-off is, you're just going to create another 2038 problem. And what John said is that there is a relatively easy, simple fix for this. You upgrade your systems from a 32-bit architecture to a 64-bit architecture. And that actually doesn't just get you double the space, but it actually gets you orders and orders of magnitude more space. In fact, that gets us many, many billions of years into the future, long after the heat death of the sun. So we are cool and good to go on that. (laughs) We're like, at that point, we have other problems to worry about, you know, aside from our date storage systems in our computer software. So that's the thing that, you know, everyone knows that they should do. It's just a question of figuring out how to do it, when to do it, which systems need it done first, and sort of triaging those questions within a company and within a structure. So are people actively working to make sure that these problems are minimized or don't pop up at all? Yeah, I think here and there, you know, many, many engineers know this is a thing. You know, many if if engineers are currently listening, if software people are listening right now, many of them are probably like, yeah, 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 I know about this. You know, so I think that here and there people are working on it and people are sort of chipping away at it. The question is, you know, is there going to be enough momentum and enough work on it to prevent problems later on down the line. And there are some kinds of devices that have sort of built in software. It's baked in when you ship the product. So you can think about things like your home appliances, right? Your oven arrives and your oven has a little, very simple, well, unless you have a smart oven, which you may, has a computer in it. And that computer has sort of a baked in hardware and a baked in software. And that software may be vulnerable to the 2038 problem. And you know, it's not like you or I are going to like open your oven up and fix it. 100% I am not going (laughs) to do that. Right. And nor should you probably just like for safety reasons. Like I'm not, I'm, many people are not qualified to be messing around around gas lines. Um, (gasps) But so those are the kinds of products that have software built into them, but that might not get updated. And you can think about, you know, your oven is maybe a pretty low risk situation. You're probably, probably not going to do anything other than like not 
tell you the date or like get confused and not be able to cook something for a while in your oven. That's like not that big of a deal. But one of the other types of items that John pointed out were things like maybe some older medical equipment, right? That has was shipped with software in it that hasn't been updated and that might turn off basically um, when we get there. So that's the kind of stuff that I think, you know, people are most worried about because it's the hardest to fix because it's Mm -hmm. distributed across all these devices all over the place where like you can't, they're not necessarily internet connected. You can't push a software update update to them. So the question is then like, what do you do about that? Do you recall those devices? How do you figure out what to do next? So, okay, so is there anything that we can do to feel more prepared for for these kinds of upcoming crises, things that are projected out into the future and that we know are coming, but that, you know, that that still feel kind of distant? Yeah, I think it's interesting because for many people who don't work in tech or in software, this is not that dissimilar from, say, like a natural disaster, you know, where you know it's a problem, you know it's coming, but there's actually kind of nothing you can do personally to stop it. So one person I talked to for this uh, episode of the podcast Flash Forward is Dr. Sarah McBride. Um, She is a disaster emergency communications expert, um, and she sort of studies how people do or don't receive messages about preparedness. But what she told me is that um, there are a couple of things you can do. The first part of dealing with mental preparedness is accepting what can happen, right? Like accepting that we can have a, a huge upsetting earthquake or we can have a hurricane or, you know, accepting that these things can and are likely to occur sometime in your lifetime, I think is like the first step of going, right, here's what can happen. And then the second thing is really finding out as much good, verifiable information you can about that particular event. The other thing I would say to be more resilient is is really do all you can, but then also find as much joy as you can in the situation that you've got. Finding and embracing and sort of trying to really be aware of and appreciative of any little moment of joy that is happening is really helpful because if you just wallow in the, the darkest depths of your psyche, which is tempting sometimes, uh, that is not helpful. That is not going to help you be more prepared. That's not going to help you react. So if you can find the little little tiny moments of joy in your life as this is happening, that's actually really strongly linked to resilience and recovery. So those are the three things that she highlighted, among others. Okay, well... We are all going through a disaster of sorts right now with this coronavirus pandemic. So what's a tiny joy that you've been holding on to recently? Ooh, so I'm out in Berkeley, California, and so I have the luxury of being able to still go in the mornings to this very large park that is almost always empty. Um, my dog and I go at sun, like first light, basically. So we show up before sunrise and I get to walk around and hear the birds and I don't generally bring my phone. I leave it in the car so that I, I am not tempted to doom scroll like while I'm in this beautiful place. <laughs> It's like an hour in my morning where I can kind of like just have this semblance of normalcy, go outside, hear the birds, see the view, like throw the ball for my dog who has no idea what's going on and is like blissfully unaware and just sort of like try to channel that for a little bit of the morning. I uh, totally relate, except that my dog does not fetch. And I am really upset about that. (laughs) Reggie! (laughs) 
Rose Evleth is a futurologist and the creator of the podcast Flash Forward. Rose, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Listen to Rose's podcast Flash Forward. I've been listening to it for years and have been a fan of Rose's work for even longer. Oh, and fun fact, uh, Rose was my first podcasting instructor in grad school a million years ago. Now, it's Sunday, and recently on Sundays, we've been playing clips from listeners telling us what life has been like for them during the pandemic. And this week, we've got some more. Bit of a different one, but I've picked up a DJ controller recently, so I've been learning to DJ and mix whilst I've been stuck indoors all day, and it's been really fun. So this tech is actually getting my mom through quarantine. She lives alone and is in her early to mid-60s, and she discovered a Talking Animals app. And you can upload a picture of a dog or a baby and record the message and change the speed or pitch of the voice and it animates a photo to make it look like the dog is talking. She has absolutely loved it, and sometimes I will call her to chat, and she is too busy playing with her app to talk to me. Hi. Thanks for making one of my favorite podcasts. Um, I work at a community theater in Corvallis, Oregon, and we've had to cancel all of our performances So last week, I figured out how to use Zoom uh, to do live community theater performances online. Zoom isn't really designed to do this, but I figured out a whole bunch of workarounds to do some like really rudimentary blocking in the way that the gallery view functions so that people can feel like they're actually watching a live piece of theater and the actors are loving it and the community is loving it and Now we're suddenly managing an entire community theater season online once a week. It's not something I ever thought we would do, but it's been incredibly important work to keep our community alive and to bring people joy. Hi, Ariel. I am sending this to you from Iowa. I drive a semi for a living, and even though Tesla is doing some amazing work on it, They haven't quite perfected the remote. I uh, have been going to work every day since the pandemic started. And every day our governor comes on the air and says that she's not shutting down the state. And every day my wife swears at the television and says, why not? Because he's going to get infected. I don't think I have so far. Knock wood. But I have been very, very cautious and using all of the precautions I've been told to. What I use technology for, even through this, is to listen to your wonderful podcast and many others that Vox offers. Uh, In fact, I just cleared my cell phone data this morning, and uh, I'm glad I switched to the unlimited plan because I'm up over 30 gigabytes. So thank you for your work and your podcast, and please stay healthy. Thank you to everyone who sent us a recording. Hearing your voices brings me a lot of that joy Rose was talking about. If you want to send me something, email recordings to reset at vox.com. 
And make sure you tell us your name and where you're located at the top of the recording. That's it for today's show. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Duemros. But you don't have to say it that way. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Skylar Swenson and Will Reed produced the show. Amy Drozdowska edited the episode. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Our intern is Daniel Marcus. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. And the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds.